Welcome to Picked Voices, the interview series conducted by faculty members of the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking with notable members of the broader Picked community. Our goal is to present you with a variety of voices from across the spectrum of the humanities and critical creative thinking. My name is David Sillem Sayers, and today it is my pleasure to welcome Ole von Uxkull, Executive Director of the Right Livelihood Foundation, which gives out the annual Right Livelihood Awards. Welcome, Ole. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Ole, let me just jump in with my first question. The Right Livelihood Award is often referred to as the quote-unquote alternative Nobel Prize. The idea, I know, was born in 1979, after the Nobel Foundation turned down a proposal by your uncle, Jakob von Uxkull, to found two new Nobel Prizes, one addressing the environment and the other global poverty. So when that didn't work out, your uncle funded a new award instead, the Right Livelihood Award, and the first awards were presented in 1980, one day before the Nobel Prize. Clearly, then, uh, the Right Livelihood Award is supposed to be something that the Nobel Prize isn't. What is this something, Ole? Well, thank you for that uh, that historical question. And we've been thinking about uh, that quite a lot recently because it was just recently 40 years. 40 years ago, we had the first award presentation in Stockholm, which was incidentally the the day when people heard in, in Europe on the radio in the mornings that John Lennon had been shot dead in the streets of New York. That's how long ago this first award presentation was. And as you said, the, the idea had been forming in uh, the year or the years before. First of all, as a kind of counterbalance to add some subjects, because the Nobel Foundation 10 years earlier in, in 1969 had started presenting a new award, the Economics Prize in memory of Alfred Nobel. So they had started diverting from the last will of Alfred Nobel and uh, introduced a new category. And so the idea of my uncle and even that you know there was debate other people at the time was to say look if you if you can add new nobel categories it shouldn't just be economics there should also be the environment which was a, still a new debate and, and this focus on global poverty secondly there was also a notion even within the scientific fields covered by the nobel prizes that they were interpreting them in a very narrow or even ideological way. So, for instance, that there had not and there has never been a physics award for the science underlying uh, solar energy and photovoltaics. So that became a right livelihood award. We gave an award to Martin Green, the uh, scientific pioneer of the physical and, and you know, engineering um, science underlying modern photovoltaic cells or medicine by the Nobel is interpreted in a very biochemical way, you know, the human body basically as a machine. And we've been honoring practitioners of, you know, other health or more, more manual health traditions like Ina May, Ina May Gaskin, one of the world's leading midwives who has better results than, than the expert doctors and obstetricians in her work. And, and then 
third, there was a, a general, you know, a, a notion that this kind of superior knowledge that the Nobel Prizes are honoring needs to be balanced with action. It's fantastic how human knowledge has been evolving, but our insights also need to be matched by our by our actions and and to connect you know, our knowledge and our action. We need even an evolution of our norms because superior knowledge and technology also need a deeper deeper normative insights and um, and some kind of informed restraint in the face of our enormous um, technological and and scientific capabilities. And so this really became an award to for practitioners, for, for activists in the public interest. Ole, this really takes me into a lot of other things that I wanted to ask you, especially the things that you were saying about the directionality of the award, regarding uh, what kind of work is seen fit to receive the award, and in what direction does that take activism and research? And that is something that I want to come to, sort of the normative aspect of these awards. But before I get there, one question that is more fundamental, because I do think it sort of connects to everything that you've been saying so far, and that is the concept of right livelihood itself. You borrow or you adopt the concept of right livelihood from Buddhism. And when one looks at your foundation's logo, again, we recognize some far Eastern philosophical imagery. Uh, you use the imagery of the lotus flower, which is once again connected to Buddhism, and of uh, yin and yang, which goes back to the very, very ancient uh, Chinese philosophy indeed. So, Ole, two questions for you here, which maybe will allow you to elaborate a little bit on what you were saying earlier. Firstly, what is the significance of these concepts and symbols for you? The concept of right livelihood on the one hand, and these symbols of the lotus flower and of yin and yang. What is the significance of those? And secondly, as an organization founded and anchored in the West, why do you find it necessary to look beyond the West in this way in your self-presentation? I, I think at the time, again looking back at 1979, 1980, that was a kind of notion that you know the West had a this enormous material progress, but a lot of ancient wisdom was more with the materially poor, with with poorer people, with indigenous peoples, and the award should should help to balance that. So I think one of the early brochures I remember said something like, um, "the the Right Livelihood Award wants to to help the." north to learn from the ancient wisdom of the south and the south to be supported with the uh, material or engineering uh, success of northern countries or something like that which you know looking back today i would say is a bit of a simplified notion because now western consumerist and, and materialist culture has certainly pervaded the whole globe and also historically, I mean, we know that this is something that we don't only find in Western culture. And I, I think the real division line today is much more between the haves and the have-nots in, in any society. And and the resistance to that consumerism and, and uh, untamed materialism also, I would say, today comes from, from many angles, not just from Eastern philosophy. Philosophy it comes from uh, certainly, you know, theological traditions like liberation theology in Latin America. Um, certainly, Buddhism. We we have a great Buddhist scholar among our lords, but we also have 
Uh, one year we gave an award to a Hindu and a Muslim religious teacher in, in India in the same year. It also comes from from you know scientific traditions like deep ecology or alternative economics or uh, social movements like women's movement, youth movements, etc. And what we say in our in, in our statutes uh, that were written back then when the award uh, began was that it should serve to both reduce material and spiritual poverty. And I think even if, you know, I just said we, we shouldn't track that down only to Eastern philosophy, only to Buddhism, I still think that we could call these these resistance movements or alternative schools of thought, we could call them spiritual in the way that they oppose the, the purely material notion of progress. But, um, you know, today we wouldn't tie that down to just one tradition and, and we're actually uh, in a, uh, when it comes to just the visual impression, we're currently in the rebranding process. So there'll be um, less display of lotus flowers in the, in the future. <laughs> All right, I see. So basically then, well, you're saying that maybe a contrast that was a little bit in a facile way made between quote-unquote north and south or quote-unquote east and west between sort of a materialistic and a more you may call it spiritual or uh, idealistic outlook has now actually been identified within each and every society itself you're absolutely right in that you say you know today when we look at material wealth we see more of it coming maybe from the east to the west uh, than the other way around so apart from all this focus on various traditions from around the world, how would you summarize the concept of right livelihood, Ole? It is about our actions. It is about, you know, walking the talk. It is this notion of what you do in the world, what we do with the time that is given to us. And that is a strong focus always in our jury discussions that, you know, this is not an award just for great ideas. This is an award for people who change things with their practical work. And, and that is, you know, the really difficult thing, because there are many great theories about how things should be different in the world. And, and people write wonderfully elaborate books about that, uh, but they never get into the doing. And then there are many uh, great initiatives, um, social entrepreneurs, etc., who who do a lot of good, but don't really challenge the underlying rules of the game. And we're really interested in this, this overlap, people who do challenge the fundamental rules of the game, but who do that by you know, practical successes, by carving out alternative spaces where, where they show that, yeah, basically that we have choices, you know, that, that uh, alternatives exist. Yeah, well, that so that actually sounds, uh, I mean, I chuckle here because it sounds a little bit like sort of the manifestos that we come up with at the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking uh, for how to restructure or how to reinvent higher education, uh, creating alternative spaces in which sort of an alternative theory does not just exist as a theory, but actually meets action and meets the people who can turn that into a reality. Um, so yeah, there you go. Absolutely. Uh, Ola, I want to talk now a little bit, I mean, we have been sort of delving into action, but before we go further into the actions and the sort of knowledge base generated by the actions of the Right Livelihood Award and its laureates, I do want to talk a little bit more about theory 
namely the theory of having a prize or an award like the Right Livelihood Award, or for that matter, the Nobel Prize. Because as you were saying earlier, the Right Livelihood Award, in a way, I mean, the way you framed it was also a critique of the direction in which a prize like the Nobel Prize is taking scientific attention and scientific research. So what I wanted to say about that is, I mean, I did write that down as a question that I wanted to ask you, because I do feel that major international awards draw attention to certain people, events and causes. That's the point. Uh, but in so doing, they also draw it away from others. So these prizes become sort of gatekeepers and arbiters of what is excellent, where the research should go, where our attention should go. And in your case, even what is deserving of some kind of moral endorsement. Now, for you, or for anybody else presenting a prize or an award like this, this is an immense responsibility to take on. And it can, it can seem presumptive, especially at a time when all around the world, the idea of a sort of Western-originated moral leadership has become so extremely controversial. So, Ole, my question for you, uh, regarding the Right Livelihood Award, but also more generally this kind of award, uh, how does one live up to the responsibility of directioning or directing this kind of attention? And how do you legitimize having this responsibility in the first place? I, I, I agree. That's a responsibility. And first and foremost, you know, how, how do we earn that legitimacy? I would say by, by doing our work well and the substance of you know, doing the work well and, and how we organize the nominations process is to do very good fact-based research. So we research all the incoming nominations. We, we visit the ones that are most interesting in order to, to cope with that because there are you know, large numbers involved. Very often we carry interesting nominations forward for a couple of years before some of them receive awards and also others, of course, inevitably are turned down. So we, we get to know them. And um, pre-COVID, we, we traveled a lot and we see ourselves traveling a lot again. We do triangulation with people who know the work of the nominee. We always talk to critics so that we know the different perspectives on the work of a nominee. And we're, you know, we're quite obsessed with that kind of work. That's really an investigation journalism approach and then secondly we we have a broad global representation and overview on our jury so the ones who in the end based on all this research get to take the decision on the four laureates of the year are a group it, it is still a roughly 50 percent european group because in a way europe is is our base but there's also at least one person from every other part of the world in that so that's kind of the Jewish the, the input legitimacy into the process um, and and then the output legitimacy of course is just the, the quality of our choices and the the impact we generate in the end and according to our impact model that is both the effect that the award has for the laureates in terms of supporting them in terms of spreading their ideas in terms of also importantly serving to protect those whose whose life or liberty is at risk, but also the impact on the general public in spreading inspiration and role models and hope and uh, education opportunities. And and maybe if I may just on, on your point of um, the, the Western leadership 
notion that is not just important um, to have, have a broader vision than that in the selection process. It's also important in a lot of the, of the work that we do with our networks. So when we, for instance, we do solidarity visits for threatened laureates in their home countries, and we always make sure that if, for instance, we travel to an African country, we don't come there just to, you know, <laughs> Northern European people, uh, but we would make sure to bring laureates from other parts of the world in order to really stress this notion that we're you know, in such a mission, we're defending universal human values. Yeah, I mean, that is exactly, I mean, this kind of detail about the process of coming about your nominees, and then sort of the process of forwarding them and bringing them to a jury, or how you go after them in terms of the investigative approach, that is what I wanted to draw you out on. But also, what I gather from what you've been saying, and also your earlier responses, a little bit that, well, an award like the Right Livelihood Award and please comment on this and tell me whether you think I'm on the right track here or not. It seems that it actually benefits from a certain positionality. It benefits from setting out saying, okay, this is what we set out to do. This is the direction in which we want to take your attention, right? We're not pretending to some kind of aloof objectivity, sort of, you know, what we award here is not necessarily objectively, in, what one, in whatever sense one might define that objectivity, objectively worthy of the award, but we are awarding with these specific criteria, this is a subjective, this is a positional point of view, and this is what we're defending. Right. I mean, that's obviously completely right. And that is, I mean, we're a Swedish foundation. That is how, how philanthropy works. It, it is a private initiative. And that, that's what I meant by output legitimacy. Um, it, it is you know, the, the normative, the political agenda that we stand for and the kinds of changes that we think the world urgently needs. And we, we have that freedom to, to organize our uh, work as a private um, but public interest institution in that way. But we're also aware, of course, that that's a position of, of um, privilege, both that we have the freedom in, in Sweden to do that and also that uh, thanks to the uh, support of, of our donors, we have the economic means to do that. And I think it's a, a legitimacy that we, every day we need to, to work to keep it up and, and always gain uh, it by uh, the, the impact that we create. Right, Ole. Uh, thank you for commenting on that. Another question regarding the, the general nature of awards, international awards, is that when I think about these awards, one thing that bothers me sometimes, you know, Okay, let me give a different example. When I was getting my PhD in the United States, I used to spend every weekend in New York City. And I used to take these walking tours around the different neighborhoods of New York City, um, guided walking tours. And on one of these walking tours, we went by this monument. And the guide explained to us that this was a monument to the suffering of the Native Americans uh, during the American colonization. And I had this very strange feeling. I was like, okay, so you put a monument and that means that it's in the past. That means that it's over. That means the, that the problem has, has been solved. We have sort of monumentalized it. We have erected a, a, a memorial to it, implying that whatever the struggle was about is over, right? And awards uh, sometimes remind me of that, in that awards seem to imply that something has already been achieved or resolved, uh, the race has been won, the problem has been solved, the story is over. But this is exactly why Le Docteur, 
The Vietnamese revolutionary, in fact, rejected the Nobel Peace Prize in 1973 because he said, uh, I'm sorry, but this prize makes it seem like the conflict in Vietnam is over, but it's not over. So I'm not going to accept this award because that's just going to create the false impression in the public eye. Uh, let's put it that way. Uh, so what do you think about this? Do you think that is correct? Uh, what do you think about this understanding of a prize as a reward, with the implication that something has been completed and resolved? And do you think that the Right Livelihood Award is this kind of prize? Yeah, first of all, I, I like your story of Le Doctor, and of course the other side of the story is that Kissinger did accept. And yes. <laughs> to, to me, the guy is a war criminal for the bombing of Vietnam and the, the bombing of Cambodia. But yeah, I mean, you, you make a very important point. And um, I would say there are even some awards where the the packaging of this past achievement of a person or a group awarded, this packaging is mainly done in order to shine a light on the organization that presents the award as kind of a PR thing, not for the laureate first and foremost, but for the prize giver who may have the economic means to do so to associate themselves with this you know nicely packaged achievement and um i would confidently claim that we're not in that camp if you look at our work we put a lot of emphasis on working very actively with the whole network of laureates that we've built since 1980. We've given 182 awards to, I think, 72 countries since. And we always stress that for the Right Livelihood Award, the, the day of the award presentation is not the end of the relationship, but it's the, the beginning of the relationship with the laureates. We, we sometimes say jokingly on that day, uh, the day of the presentation, that that's the only day when we don't work because all the other days... <laughs> Um, we, we do have this, this bond of solidarity with the laureates and a bond of solidarity only works if you forge it actively, if, if you foster it actively all the time. And then, you know, great things develop from that because we've, especially also with, with our, uh, we started a UN office in Geneva five years ago where we have consultative status with the United Nations. And that's really developing into a kind of very active platform to connect laureates with with each other, but also to connect them with the United Nations and with all the you know opportunities and campaigns of international civil society. So um, it it is something to avoid this notion that you you mentioned of just memorializing, and it is something that you can avoid if you make an active investment. Right. Um, well, uh, this uh, actually, uh, I want to follow up on that with two comments. The first one regarding the prize as a PR for the prize giver rather than the person who receives the prize. That's something that I've been thinking about uh, ever since it came to my attention that there was another person who rejected the Nobel Peace Prize. No, not the Peace Prize, the Prize for Literature, Jean-Paul Sartre. And then I thought, well, the first thought that I had when I learned that was, well, okay, they uh, missed the chance to associate themselves with Sartre's name, not the other way around. 
<laughs> so that was for me a kind of like an aha moment where, where I thought, okay, what comes first, the chicken or the egg, the prize or the laureate, right? Uh, so that was something I, that I would have asked you in a different interview. I had more questions, but you already answered that. So thank you very much for that. And, and, and that, no, it, it's interesting also because, we, I mean, we really have, our laureates have different needs. And in, in the end, I spoke about the impact of the award, the impact, um, at least as long where it comes to the laureates, has to be that it caters to their needs. And, you know, some of them do not need, first and foremost, the international attention that this award brings. We had the, the amazing American lawyer and um, civil rights activist Brian Stevenson last year. And God, my God, this man has a lot of attention. He can't save himself from, from interview requests. But his, for instance, was a case where he so appreciated this international network at the links to, to laureates and other uh, parts of the world. So this continued work, of course, adds a, a new dimension also for the laureates, which makes it valuable in a totally different way than, than a regular award. Right. And in regard to that continued work, there was just one little thing I wanted to ask as an educator, because what I noticed was that you also have, in association with the foundation, uh, a Right Livelihood College. Would you like to talk uh, in a few sentences about what that college does? That is an initiative that we've been building up over the last 10 years with the idea to bridge the gap, the gap between academia and activism. So it is constituted by so far 10 memoranda of understanding that we as the foundation have with universities on all continents. And we use uh, that project and, and we cooperate with these universities kind of as as nodes in the different part in different parts of the world that are first of all closer to our laureates than than we can be and secondly serve to connect them with students and that is probably the part of our work that is growing the most we added another absolutely fascinating cooperation with the world's largest education academic education program for human rights that's called the global campus of human rights, which in itself is a cooperation between 100 universities teaching seven master programs of human rights in seven world regions. Wow. So that's a large partnership. And now what we're building up and, and look forward to building uh, even more over the coming years are educational formats that are non-academic or beyond academic and serving social movements and the needs of activists. I mean, once again, I'm very fascinated by the connection that you're always keen, eager to draw between sort of intellectual work and the manual, the hands-on labor of activism. So that is a fascinating aspect of your work for me. Talking about hands-on, Ole, I want to draw you a little bit in that direction now, because you personally, I mean, you talked earlier about the investigative aspect of your work, about going out, and about sort of doing the research on-site about the work of your different nominees. So you personally also I don't know, Ola, uh, how many countries have you visited in your outreach, in your work uh, for the Right Livelihood Foundation? 
I think some uh, 40. Some 40 countries on all continents. Uh, but you haven't just traveled the world as somebody who sort of likes traveling the world, although I'm sure that's a part of it. You have traveled the world with an eye to the world's most urgent concerns. And on your way, you must have witnessed some wonderful heartwarming scenes, but also plenty of heartbreaking ones. I'm reminded of uh, watching the documentary on the life and work of the photographer Sebastião Salgado, and how after documenting, taking photos of conflict in sub-Saharan Africa, he basically was so traumatized that he couldn't work on, you know, he couldn't work on human subjects for a long time. So I know, I know, you know, this is a tall order to ask you to generalize like this, Ole. But, you know, I've got you here and you have visited all these countries. So let me just, you know, ask the stupid question. As someone who has seen so much, Ole, what is your take on the world as a whole today? I mean, first of all, of course, it's not a, a stupid question. It's a, it's a question that every one of us should be asking, uh, maybe more often. You know, the, the big picture perspective is so important. But on, on the other hand, it's a question that we should approach with, and especially any attempt at answering the question, we should approach with great humility. Because, yeah, I mean, we're seven billion and there's seven billion answers to, to the question. And generalizations, as you say, are are dangerous, especially or if they come from a position that is unaware of its biases or, or unique perspective. So, you know, of course, when, when I travel, when we travel, um, we do this from a privileged perspective and we don't go, I mean, we don't go into situations that are as dangerous as the, the war photographer who you mentioned. If available, mostly we, we stay at hotels and we fly out again after a few days and although we're a small foundation in relation to the people we meet we are economically powerful and um, e even at a personal level you know most of us live live lives that are not compatible with the 1.5 degree climate trajectory where at, at least at an individual level we have to be mindful that we're also part of the problem in the way we use our our privileges and um i think you know deep down deep down i'm convinced we're also afraid of of losing privileges so um you know you always have to take yourself with with, with a grain of salt in these things but having said that uh, my subjective picture on kind of the big picture uh, on your big picture question is i i think as humanity, we still haven't come to to terms with the insight of the limits to growth. That that decisive insight from that was formulated in the end of sixties, early seventies, with the uh, report to the Club of Rome. And 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 when I say we haven't come to terms, I don't think we understand yet how deeply that affects or should affect our norms and institutions. And I mean, of course, I'm talking about the limits to material growth here. Really, you know, it doesn't mean that we can't keep developing and and evolving, but the, the 1972 insight that we're approaching the limits of, of the planet's ability to sustain life really fundamentally called into question our colonial attitude towards nature. I guess even, even our colonial attitude you know, towards each other as human beings, because before, as long as, as there was an idea of kind of open frontier, you could always take more somewhere else, right? You can claim some new land, get a new colony. A lot of our norms and laws are still in that that colonial thinking. And a lot of our, our yeah, the way our societies work are still based on that when it comes to property rights, for instance. You know, I, I can fairly claim ownership over something because 
you can go somewhere else and, and get something for you. And really 50 years ago, we understood that that's no longer possible, that the overall cake is, is limited. We're living on a very finite planet. And the only logical, when again, when it comes to material things, the only logical conclusion is that we have to start sharing. And of course, that's a huge threat to the ones who already, who by that time, and, and more so since, have accumulated a lot. And the the fixation with endless economic growth really becomes the justification that you don't need to start sharing because, yeah, you know, there's you can always get more. And I think a lot, I mean, the globalization of the 90s was really, you know, growing into the last ecological spaces of other countries. And, and now we see the price that nature and humans are paying for that. Yeah. The, the UN Secretary General just presented a, a report where he speaks about our senseless and suicidal war on nature. And I think to me that that's still our inability to come to terms to to find new ways to organize our society under these limits. And uh, the, the fierce, fierce oppositions from the ones who, who have a lot to prevent that kind of transformation. Right. I mean, when you talk about sort of this utopia of endless economic growth, and on the other hand, you point out how that leads to a war, as you put it, on nature, or a war against each other, or a war against ourselves, in a way. Uh, all of this kind of brings me, or at least I'm going to try to tie it into my final question, because these are these are questions, sort of questions about economic growth, uh, questions about globalization, about productivity, about the exploitation of nature, about sort of a rampant urbanization. These are questions that have acquired a special kind of poignancy and tenderness in a way uh, since the start of COVID. And since people have started reacting to COVID and thinking about how to contextualize COVID. So the last question that I want to ask you, Ole, is about that. Because you're talking, I mean, you have given your answers to me from a fount of cumulative knowledge that is generated by the activities of the Right Livelihood Foundation. And one thing that I heard you talk about in a recent talk regarding this is that, in a way, a lot of the problems that we have in the world seem maybe very daunting and insurmountable, but in fact, they already have solutions. This is something that you've seen through your work with the foundation. The foundation shows that these problems have solutions. The question is simply one of implementation. Do you think, I mean, is this sort of atmosphere of so-called crisis that pervades us at the moment with COVID? Do you think that we're somehow genuinely faced with a new problem for which we need a new solution? Or would you rather go along with my way of thinking if I said, okay, uh, COVID highlights problems that were already present and for which, in fact, perhaps we already have the solutions? And I mean, of course, with with the magnitude of of disruptions that the pandemic is causing, of course, at at tactical levels, and I don't say that to to downplay the the severity at, at tactical levels. There are lots of new things to learn and and to get right and to scale up quickly enough and to uh, interpret correctly and to organize logistically, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But at the large level, the kind of big picture of course we we knew of course there were so many warnings of course we we understood before that the way we treat nature is suicidal and this you know this covid is about biodiversity it's about uh, species losing their habitat you say aren't aren't there don't solutions already exist that would have prevented that i mean i'm i'm not here to i, I wouldn't be the one who could claim that everyone in the world should go vegetarian or vegan but you know certainly 
uh, meat-based diet is a huge problem that has been pointed out as a huge problem. And um, if people were vegetarian or vegan, we wouldn't be do not just be doing much better regarding the climate crisis, but also COVID wouldn't have happened. And uh, also, interestingly, you see how countries that were that had some prior experience of the, the swine flu, the bird flu, etc., they were now better prepared and and coping better. So um, at least you know my my hope is, and unfortunately, it doesn't look currently as if that that hope is going to materialize, but. Uh, my hope and I think what we need to call for is that we apply the lessons that we learn now from COVID in how, how drastically we have to, but also can change course in order to meet the crisis, that we start applying those lessons on the climate crises and the global ecological crisis and the crisis of injustice. Right. And just as you were saying at the beginning, or when we were talking about your symbolism, maybe also take a look, as the Germans would say, beyond the limit of our own plates and see how other peoples around the world have been dealing and have been developing responses to these crises instead of simply blaming them for originating the crisis. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, Ole, I'm very thankful for this conversation, which in some really important ways, I feel, uh, takes us beyond the realm of purely critical thinking and actually gives us some hints as to how we may approach critical activism, combining our thinking with an active hands-on platform. Uh, so thank you very much, Ole, for sharing your thoughts and insights with us. Thank you very much. That was uh, really fascinating and I much enjoyed the conversation. Me too. <laughs> and so uh, that brings us to the end of yet another Picked Voices. If you, our listeners, would like to support the volunteer work that we're doing at our nonprofit institution, the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking, you may consider becoming a member of our community. Uh, you can find more information about how to join Picked on our website. In the meantime, my name is David Silem Sayers. I was joined today by Ole von Uxkul from the Right Livelihood Foundation. And I hope we have the chance to challenge you with another picked podcast soon. Goodbye.